care of business and finally get stuff straight. So it's not necessarily the age of these guys that is messing things up through this progress. So I don't want that to be an excuse, something you could get gloss over and use to, oh, it was just because they were young. No, it's not just because they were young, because there's an eight-year-old that's going to take the reign at the uh, at the end of this book that's going to rebuild the temple and, and, and begin to get stuff straight and finally tear down the, the problem. The second thing is this. Um, well, before we go to the next screen, I want you to see the title. How will you be recorded? If, you, if you're on Facebook or social media or whatever you saw last night, do you want what to be written about you to be written like Chronicles? Or do you want to be written like Kings? And a couple of people were like, what in the world does that mean? And I hope when we leave here today, we'll know the difference. So I want you to think for, for a minute, just this morning, how will you be recorded if somebody was writing a book about you? What would they say? What accomplishments would they, would they write about? Would it be in a Chronicle style or would it be in a King style? And here in just a minute, maybe you can differentiate and figure out what we mean by that. But first is this, because somebody keeps asking how we got so many kings. So I just want to remind us, because I know we're in a series and we're going verse by verse. But but look at this map. The, the kingdom has been divided because of man's problem. I guess is the easiest and quickest way to, to kind of summarize what's going on. So we get king here and king there and, and back and forth on stuff. I want you to keep in mind, like you've got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom being Judah, uh, at one time David ruled it all, so keep that in mind. But but since him, now there, there's been division. Just like division in the real world when there's division uh, amongst things you can't believe and can't agree on, you divide up your land, you divide up where you live, you divide up who you are. So God's chosen nation gets split into the southern and the northern. In shorthand, the northern is called Israel. The southern is called Judah. And there's where all these kings we've been talking about, some from the north and some from the south. Uh, of course, we've said before that the northern kingdom is much, much worse. Not that the southern kingdom has all good kings, but there's more good to be said about them than there will ever be to be said about the, the northern kingdom. So I just throw that out there just so maybe it can help you in your study and, and where we're at. Because this morning, we do both. So we start with the southern kingdom of Judah. Probably one of the more well-known kings. I said last week, I think he was probably the most famous under David, going by his reign of, of, of power, which was 52 years, the things that, that he accomplishes and what's not. Uh, but here's what I want you to look at. Since we're in, which by the way, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, since we did do the, the holy, holy, holy thing, which, which comes from Isaiah, I do want to point out, Isaiah 6, 1 says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne and his robe filled the temple. This is the this is the reign that Isaiah is writing about. And, and two things are happening here. One, we're, we're known how well Judah must have been doing because Isaiah himself is mourning the loss of his king. But as you read and, and, and finish, of course, Isaiah's writing, you understand that even though we've lost a great king, God is still on the throne. Because we're not all about man's king. We're still looking for the king, the Abba, the father of the kingdom. OK, so so keep that in mind. Uh, here's where it starts this morning. Let's jump in because we got a lot of verses. I don't know if we'll make it through all of them. We're going to try. Jump down to verse 3 where it starts to get some appraisal for King Azariah, as you see, or I think more of you would probably know him as Uzziah. And here's what it said. He did right in the sight of Yahweh. And then we got that comma. That Well, we don't have the word but there, but we got that that, that disclaimer. He did what was right in the sight of Yahweh according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And last week we made a real clear lesson that the problem is we keep wanting to judge people by lowering the standard. And it's no different here. We say, oh, he did great. But he did great according to his father. Now his father and his grandfather and the father before him, they continued to lower the bar. So what are we really saying when we say this guy did great? Except he didn't do all that God wanted to be done. He just did great according to his father. Whose bar are you being measured by? It'd be easy to measure myself by the bars and the standards of this world. But I'm not called to be measured by the standards of this world. I'm called to be measured by the standards of the kingdom. And if I'm being measured by the standards of the kingdom, I don't get to have a comma according to all that my dad said I should do. According to all that my mom said I should do, according to all that my, my wife said I should do, according to all that you guys said I should do, it should be either I did well according to what God said or I didn't. At the end judgment, it doesn't say like Paul, Paul didn't say like I can finish the race and say, man, I did as 
I did as good as my mom and dad wanted me to do. And that was good enough. No, he can finish the race proud and look at father and say, I've done what you wanted me to do. Can we say that or are we continuing to lower the bar? Because each week we get this this quote, and, and maybe you could say it this way. He did like his father before him did, so they hadn't failed completely. So maybe a, a, a month early, as we mentioned Father's Day, maybe your dad should understand that these kids are doing exactly what daddy before him did. If daddy before him was completely horrible, they were completely horrible or worse. If daddy before him was was good, but not quite there, then they were good but not quite there. So fathers, let me ask you, where do you want to set the bar at for your family? Where do you want to set the bar at for, for yourselves in your home when you look in the mirror? Are you content to just be, well, we'll just keep doing what my granddaddy did and his granddaddy did and his granddaddy did. And, and I, Or are we going to raise the bar and realize I'm supposed to be doing what Abba Father has called me to do? These guys are nothing but imposters, man. They're apostates. They... So really when we say according to his father did, that's no real compliment. If anything else, that's that's a degrade. And we've heard this thing repeated over and over and over again for all of these last kings. And and it's all about this, verse 4, which is really the only thing recorded in the book of Kings for a 52-year reign of Uzziah. And it says only the high places were taken away. Were not taken away. Sorry, that's the problem. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high place. So there it is again, the sin that God specifically forbade, the sin that was too much like all the other pagan religions, the same sin that Judah continuing to follow the pattern of. So they could not sing the song like you and I sang of holy, holy, holy. Lord, you are the only thing I want because he's not the only thing they want. They want him and then a little bit of something else. Is that like us? Is part of our problem in our walk is... We want him, and then we want just a little bit of what the world says about it, too. We want a little bit of what mom and dad said about it. We want a little bit about what so-and-so said about it. We want a little little, little bit about what this famous pastor says about it. Or are we just going to take it for, for what his word says? 52 years, seven verses, and that's all the writer of Kings mentions. So then here, here's a question for you, for you note-takers. So in 52 years, is that really all he accomplished? Was God going to let a man stay on the throne? 52 years, the longest reign since David. And that's it? The only thing written about him is that he couldn't even get rid of the high places? Now, here's where we have to use other books of the Bible. All right, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We've kind of done this for, for many of the weeks in this series, the parallel passage. So 2 Chronicles 26, the entire chapter is about Uzziah. The entire thing. And here's what I want you to understand. So when, when I ask you about how will your life be recorded and, and what's the difference between these two, you need to understand the difference in the motive between Kings and Chronicles. Chronicles is a history book. It's recording as many details as it can. It's getting as much in there as it can. It's recording everything it can record about somebody. So we're going to get a lot of details about it. Kings, you could say it this way. Kings is written more from like a theological standpoint. It wants to drive home the theological idea, the main point. And any, any, how many married people we got? All right. So, so like 80% of us, which is great, right? You ever get the silent treatment at home? (laughs) Somebody gets it more than others, right? Now, let me ask you this. When you're getting the silent treatment, not to say it's right or wrong or anything else, but when you're getting, some of y'all are doing the, the lumpy cross without turning your heads. I still see your eyes. You're guilty, right? Like, like when you're getting the silent treatment, is your spouse not telling you anything? Or are they telling a lot? Is it safe to say like during silent treatment, they may even be speaking more in silent treatment than they could have ever spoken in words? Took me a long time to catch it. Oh, no, I, that's true. Took me a long time to catch it when I read these two chapters this week. But what I realized is this. Kings is giving the silent treatment to Uzziah. Because in what it doesn't say, it speaks volumes. Let me show you the difference. If you're in 2 Chronicles 26, just mark it. A bunch of these aren't on the screen. I want to just go through it so you can see the difference, right? We get all this information, historical accounts. We're going to get exactly what Uzziah did from a history standpoint. All right? Verses 1 through 3, all the good that he did, 
In verses 1 through 3, it even quotes this. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah. That's verse 2. That's awesome. Here's why that's awesome. Eloth was a town in Edom that was inhabited by Judah but had been taken over. And Uzziah said, you know what? That was part of the kingdom that God gave my family, my people. I'm going back to get it. He went back and got it. So that's bold. That's awesome. That's good stuff. Then you get this long section, 12 verses to be exact, on all the good Uzziah did for Judah. And it started, go to verses 4 and 5, super important. I think those are on the screen. He did what was right in Yahweh's sight. Then we get that stupid comma part. But only as his father Amaziah had done. I think it's because his dad was a poor dad. He sought God throughout the lifespan of Zechariah. So now we're getting why he's so successful here in a minute. He's going to be super successful for a lot of stuff for 52 years. He's about to get a job resume list that is awesome. And here's why. Verse 5. He sought God. He sought Yahweh throughout his lifetime. This guy is seeking God. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I read it wrong. He sought God throughout the lifetime of Zechariah. Not throughout his lifetime. So, so what's that verse really saying? Then it reminds me of Zechariah, the teacher uh, of the fear of God. During the time that he sought Yahweh, God gave him success. What's the verse really saying? Verse saying, you're about to get an awesome autobiography about this guy, and it's all because he was seeking God. And why he's seeking God, God gives him all this success, but then you get like this little part in the middle that says he only sought God through the lifetime of, of Zechariah. It's like saying, I'm only going to church if they got the cool preacher preaching. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's like saying, I only want to get what God's got for me if it's going to be said in a really nice way or if it's going to be on somebody else. How much different could these verses have been if it said he had sought God throughout his lifetime and continued to seek God through his lifetime? How long could his success have continued to reign? How much more would have written about been written about him in the book of Kings versus the book of Chronicles? So Chronicles goes on. Because I know you're wondering where in the world, what's the point here, right? So, so it goes on, it says that he was a king who sought God and he's blessed because of it. Verses 6 and 7. Uzziah did something that's never been done before in 6 and 7. Look at 6 and 7 real quick in that chapter. It's not on the screen. Uzziah went out to wage war against the Philistines. When's the last time we waged war against Philistines? David! This guy is awesome, man. He's getting so, he's getting so close. He tore down the wall again. Uh, the wall of Jabeth. Now remember, his reign started, by the way, I got, got, forgot to leave that out. His reign started with what? The wall being, remember last week, the wall was being tore down. So he's starting with a weakness in the wall, yet he's fixing that thing right away, right? And, and going about and taking care of it. Uh, he built cities in the vicinity uh, amongst the Philistines. Like, this guy ain't scared. He's calling them out for battle, and he's building cities and territories in their own territory. God helped him against the Philistines. This is why he didn't have to be scared. God helped him against the Philistines, the Arabs, uh, Living Gabriel and the Midnights. And it goes on. Here's what it's saying. This guy's done something that happened. This guy's calling back out a nation they were supposed to have already defeated totally. And he's doing it. And he does it so much when you get to verse 8, it's not just the Philistines. You know, he goes on and talks about him waging war against them and sending tribute and subjection. This is his fame extended to the border of Egypt. When's the last time we've heard about a king who was so famous? that his fame was extended all the way to Egypt, where the queen of Egypt and territories in Egypt got hungry and wanted to know what was going on in God's kingdom. Who was it? Solomon. You remember that? The, the, the queen of, what was it, Sheba, I think it was, where, where she, she gets this journey, she goes, yes, she goes, I've heard so much about how wise you are and what all you're doing, I need to know how you're doing it. Are we making these kind of impacts? That, that's what this guy's doing, man. His fame's extended to the border of Egypt. It's awesome. He's got a dominant power. Israel is finally looking like physically, worldly, like they were supposed to. And if you continue, there's more good. Look at 9 through 13, still in, still in Chronicles 26. Uzziah, master of homeland security, says that he fortified Judah in golden fashion. Their cities are fortified. Their towers are fortified. Their resources get solidified. The army gets strengthened. Read 13. Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. This guy is, is doing stuff. But he's only doing stuff from a political standpoint. From a political standpoint, 
This king is on top of his game. He's extended Judah's borders. He's made Judah safe. Verses 14 and 15, he becomes an inventor. He invents great weapons. His weapons are so awesome. Read it. His weapons are so awesome that it makes the enemy scared to attack. And if they did attack, they'd be sorry they did so. Here's how it says it. Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped. I hate this part. Until he was strong. What do you think happened when he became strong? Ha, man. You ever notice that? How good we're doing when we rely on God and then we start relying on ourselves. You know, your marriage is struggling, so you seek God. You start studying the Bible and and you do stuff and and you grow. And then the minute everything starts looking better, what do you do? Right back to whatever you wanted to do. Your life was struggling. Depression was taking over. You had an addiction problem, whatever it was. So you sought God. And the minute things started looking better, what do you do? Cliff says it all the time, man, even though he's not here. He talks all the time about people coming to these AA and NA meetings and, and they'll quickly say, well, I'm good enough now. I don't have to keep coming. And then six months later, they'll be back getting that new chip again because they fell during that period. He was marvelously helped until he became strong. Why? Because it's at that point that his pride is going to take over. This guy's probably like the inventor of like catapults and stuff. I don't know if you think about that scene, not to go too far into it, but, but you, you ever think about like, what is it talking about where it says it would make the enemy sorry for coming to attack, like catapults launching stuff or, or maybe like machine gun bow and arrows. I don't know, but like it'd be some cool stuff that made people afraid to, to come out. Right. But this guy invented it. He's well known for that. It sounds like a great time to live in Judah. Prosperous time, secure time. They had plenty. They have peace. They have security for 52 years. They are so successful, guys, when you read this thing in Chronicles, that when Uzziah's daddy comes back from exile, they kill him. Literally. He he had been taken captive, if you remember from the previous chapters. And when he gets out of exile and and freedom is is part of his, they intercept him and kill him because they're like, no, we, we want Uzziah to stay on the throne. Like, it's that good right now. We are that blessed right now. It's no wonder we get Isaiah chapter six, where at the beginning of Uzziah's death, Isaiah himself is in the dumps. Thinking about the changes that could take. This guy did good for Israel. Yet we're doing a verse by verse study on Kings. So what's my point? We don't learn any of that in the book of Kings. Book of Kings, we get seven verses. Well, I said there was one thing said. There's two things said. He also becomes a leper, which I'll get to in a minute. The only two things listed in seven verses of 52 years of life is that he didn't remove the high places and he becomes a, a leper. Why? Because like I said, Kings is not a historical book like Chronicles. It's a theological one. And the theological point in Kings is this. His, his strong theological point is, is in that moment of silent, the silent treatment. It's a, yeah, he was successful by worldly standards, but he wasn't successful by spiritual standards. He was successful in, in his kingdom, but he wasn't successful in, in, in the kingdom. And the enormous amount that he does of good in this, and and it can all be remembered and and written about, and it is. That's why we have two books, right? But I think the author of Kings is making this strong, strong point, talking about he missed the mark. I think the author of Kings is is really, as as he records all these kings, I mean, go back to the three kings that were saved from the lineage that was going to be destroyed from from Athelina, you know, just just a few chapters ago. So you got... uh, Jehoash, uh, Amaziah, and, and, and Uzziah today. A total of 96 years of power in Judah. And here's what's written about them. Chapter 12, we heard, verses 1 through 3. In the seventh year of Jehu, this guy becomes king. He fortified 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, da-da-da-da-da, and all this important stuff. And then it wraps it up. Only the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned their altars to other gods. Amaziah chapter 14 of Kings. In the second year he come, we get the, we get the family lineage and we get the timeline and we get who his mama is and we get who his daddy is and, and all that stuff. Then we get, and he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, yet not like his father did. I think we call this guy the half-hearted guy because he doesn't have a heart like David. He's only got a heart like his father had done. Only the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and burned incense in those, those high places. And then today we get in the 27th year of Jeroboam king that, that, that his son takes over and 
He's 16 years old. He's got the whole world ahead of him. He reigns for 52 years. We get his mama's name, and, and Kings records again in verse 4, only the high places were not taken away. It seems like the biggest thorn in the flesh of the writer of Kings is these high places. And you can wonder, why is he so focused on that? And I think it's this. I think it bothers him so much because it bothers Yahweh so much. I think he's inspired by God without the shadow of a doubt to not be successful and not to even look for success in the historical accounts because your standard is just what happens spiritually. And until there's a king that's going to come in and do what needed to be done with the high places, that's going to continue to be how he summarizes the reign of these kings. So, so then now you need to ask yourself, what high places are still in our territories? What high places are still in our lives? What stuff do we still allow to go on that we know mixes the worldly standards with godly standards? And yet we're okay with it because we don't want to wage war against those high places. Right? Not, not historic. Not, 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 when I ask the question, how's yours going to be written? Do you want your life to be written about historical success or do you want it to be written about spiritual success? Do you, want, do you want to get before Lord Almighty one day and him be listing all this stuff like Chronicles did and be like, man, you had some awesome stuff going, but I got to go back to Kings and, oh, you weren't part of my kingdom, though. You weren't doing anything for my kingdom, though. Wouldn't that be a disappointing way to sit down and have a conversation with the Lord? Huh? In the silence, the writer of Kings is making this really strong point that political success, worldly success, regardless of all the good that he did, he failed to do the one most important thing that the nation needed, and it rendered him a failure for it. He did a lot of good, but he neglected what mattered most. Is that us? Are we still worried about doing a lot of good, but neglecting what matters most? Martin Luther says this. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point in the world where the devil and the Lord are at a moment attacking one another, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be trying to profess Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is more flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. What's he saying? He's saying that if you stand for Christ everywhere, but the place where he's being attacked the most, what kind of soldier are you? Right? If you stand for Christ on areas where you're comfortable and you're in a large group and everybody cheers you on and things are good, whoop-de-freaking-do. What kind of soldier, though, are you if you don't stand where he's attacking at that moment? Meaning this way, let's apply it to real life. If you fail to mention drunkenness to somebody you know is an alcoholic, you fail as a soldier. If you fail to mention adultery to the man who's in an affair, you're a weak soldier. If you fail to speak submission to somebody who, who's just so full of pride and lacks all humility, you're a failed soldier. If you fail to condemn the worldliness and focus on the ambition being a good thing rather than not, well, where are we failing as soldiers, guys? What good would it be to have this huge rally thing if we don't preach about the things where in the heat of battle, many people are failing and many people have fallen. Not in a mean way, but in a loving way. Because we care about them, because we want them to have a relationship with Christ. We want them to better themselves. He didn't touch the one area that would end up killing a nation, rebellion before God. And because of that, what Kings is saying is, is this guy wasn't really successful at all. Which is crazy to say about Uzziah, one of the most well-known kings that we read about and all the great things that he did. And he wraps it up in one way because he failed to approach the high places. So think about that for a moment in your life and ask yourself this. How successful are you? What determines how successful you are? Maybe we should say it this way. By what ruler do you measure your success? Which kingdom are you building and securing? Notice it's both, building and securing. Real life. How many dads ever taught their kid to throw a baseball? Fish. Maybe tie a knot. Maybe change the oil in the car. Maybe use a knife. Maybe use a gun. Maybe the bow and arrows that we talked about weeks ago, right? All that stuff's great. But what good is all that stuff if we don't teach them spiritual kingdom stuff? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
What's the main thing we're supposed to be doing? Bring them up an instruction of the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. You can use all that stuff I just listed to do one of two things, either to teach them to be the best pitcher in the world, and one day they'll pitch for the Yankees, but be lost spiritually. Or as you're throwing a ball, you can apply some spiritual lessons to it. Hey, man, when this is shaped right in your life, you can fly straight. When this isn't, <laughs> you don't fly so straight, right? When you keep your eye on this, you can get the prize. When you don't keep your eye on this, this is what happens. Teachers. I, I love knowing that so many of us in here work, you work for the school district, man. And, and by us, I do not mean me because I would choke kids and you would see me on jail for body slamming them. But the rest of you that God has given a humble, loving heart to, even those that have been called to be principals now at schools where my kids are, which I think you can still paddle them. That doesn't bother me any if you want to. You teach your kids to read. You teach your kids to write. You teach them to, to pass these tests and all that stuff. But do you ever use that stuff as an opportunity to teach them more? Now, I understand you got, you got all oh, pastor. There's a legal. There's a legal right there. And there's there's legal right this. I understand. Hey, nobody's going to throw me in jail for preaching at a tire store. Nobody's going to throw me in jail for preaching in front of y'all. All right. I'm not going to lose my job either way. All right. I understand it. But isn't there ways where we can up the bar a little bit? Isn't there ways where we can scatter seed just to see what maybe take root? And then if we notice it taking root, we can do something with it. In the ways, we're just by the way we treat these kids who we know because we've heard so many times have a horrible life at home that they can feel the love of Christ and know there's something different about us. I think there's plenty of opportunity to do more than just teach them to read and write. John chapter 435. Do you not say there yet four months and then then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for the harvest. People are, are itching and want to know what's out there and why we are the way we are. You're not a teacher, you're not a dad. How about a businessman? How about a, how about a work guy? How many empires you built through your daily tasks? How many great things have you accomplished? How many treasures do you look at at the end of the week of all that you've done in the numbers game and, and all that stuff? And I agree, it's so easy to get wrapped up in. But what does scripture tell us to store our treasures in? I don't think it's in worldly things. I think it's in kingdom things, right? Isn't that the problem of the rich young ruler, Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus said, if you wish to be complete, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, but you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he knew he owned too much stuff. He was too focused on worldly stuff. And not just worldly people. How about pastors and Sunday school teachers? Are we content just to have a nice looking church and happy members, a steady budget, not to be judged too harshly by our people? You know, I don't have a problem with people visiting churches. I don't. I think it's great, right? Whether you visit here, visit somewhere else. Here's where our problem comes in. Is when somebody comes and they tell me, man, I heard a great a great sermon. That's not the problem, by the way. I think that's wonderful. Like, I think you should be fed, right? But here's what they say. That pastor was just so funny. That's what made it a great sermon? That's what made your spiritual involvement in life so wonderful, is that he was funny. I pray, man, I hope, and please tell me if you do, that when you leave here, you don't have the mindset of only one thing. Man, he sure was funny today. Because I have ultimately failed you if that's the one thing you remember. I'm dead serious. Think about it. Oh, I loved how he made me feel. You, You love how he made you feel? When I read chapters like this in Scripture, I feel like crap. Am I right? Sometimes I shouldn't love how I, now don't get me wrong, there, there, you got to balance it. There are times when you feel and leave great. But should there not be times where you leave and feel pretty crummy? Really? I think if we leave every week feeling well, we probably miss part of what God's trying to teach us. Right? There's not going to be any change if you feel good every every day you leave, right? If you read scripture all the time, you're like, oh, I just feel so great. What change is that going to produce then? What does what, what what scripture say? It says, it's like somebody looks in a mirror and they, they notice they got all this, this cattywapa stuff going on with their hair and they're fat. I don't have that problem. See, I'm good. But, but, but somebody looks in the mirror and sees that and they're like, they don't do nothing about it. If you feel good about it, then you're not going to do anything about it. So, so should you always feel good? I think not. Timothy, man, my, my hero since he was such a young pastor, as far as his writings, chapter four says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, preserving these things. For as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who are listening to you. Meaning the words that you and I say, the teachings that you and I go through is so powerful. It not only secures our own, it has the potential to secure others. That's dangerous, man. 
That's scary. Because I don't want to say something wrong that's going to secure you in the wrong, the wrong stuff. So I tell you all the time, you better check stuff out on your own. So I bathe everything in scripture. Spurgeon says this. Now observe, my brothers, if I or you or any of us or all of us shall have spent our lives merely in amusing men or educating men or moralizing men. When we shall come to give an account at the great last day in the very condition that we are in and we shall have but a very sorry record to render for of what will avail, what will be to a man who is educated, yet he comes to be damned. Of what service will it be to him who have been amused when the trumpet sounds and heaven and earth are shaken and the pit opens up and swallows the soul unsaved? Of what avail even if have moralized a man if still on the left hand of the judge? And if still depart ye cursed is what he hears from the master's mouth. So you've gained the whole world. You've achieved all your goals. You found all the comfort. Yet you haven't done anything for the kingdom that lasts forever. That was Uzziah's problem. That was his greatest problem. Matthew 6, 26. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what will give a man in exchange for his soul? Are you content to lower the bar and live by the standards that make you successful by the world? Are you going to start following Yahweh's matters and address things that need to be addressed? It's like task oriented versus people oriented. I think Uzziah was great in task orientation. He had a lot of tasks he accomplished, but he didn't care about the deepest needs of the people. And it's seen by what he does. Think about Jesus. When I can't remember which, which one of the Gospels it's in, but he, but he sends his, his disciples to go get bread. And they come back with the bread, and they're, they're so happy. You know, when, when you do something that, 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 that your leader told you to do, and you thought you did it right, and they come back and like, hey, I, I got this bread. It's, it's great. And Jesus looks at you. Remember what he says? He goes, how many people did you, did you talk to while you were there? And the disciples are like, I got the bread. And Jesus is like, yeah, but how, how many people did you did you love on it and, and check on and, and find out if they were right? And the disciples are like, yeah, but but I got the I got the bread. And Jesus is like, yeah, but but what about all those people you walked past and all those people you could have shared me with and all those people that you could have could have checked on and prayed for and, and cared for? And, and I think the disciples got the point that they let their task sidetrack them from the people. How often is it we do the same thing? How often is it we get sidetracked by the task and forget about the people? If you keep kingdom driven living where God is number one, truly, like the song said, where nothing else matters except for him being on the throne. Then you will be people driven because he's driving you to care for people. He summed it up best in in, in his commands that, that he wants you to love him. And from loving him, you then what? Love others. And if you don't. Then you're dropping the ball. Too many people would call Isaiah, Uzziah, Azariah, whichever name you want to call him, this great, great king. But he didn't do for Judah the one thing that Judah needed done. What what if, and you're thinking, man, I'm not a king, and I'm not a pastor, and I'm not a Sunday school teacher, and I'm not this. Let me ask you this. What if the one person you're a spiritual leader to, because you should be, I don't know if you realize that, Scripture tells you, you you who are old and wise should be ministering to those under you at whatever level, even if it's the little babies next door, right? So, so what if the one person you're ministering to that is under you needed you to say that one hard thing about removing the high places, yet you didn't want to be uncomfortable in your conversation, so you didn't. And as successful as that relationship looked, when it came down to it, it was worthless. It was worthless. Are you spiritually motivated or worldly motivated? Sometimes we just got to say hard stuff, man. A lot of y'all didn't like, uh, what was it, almost a month ago now? Y'all didn't like me telling you not to use Easter. I'm okay with that. I don't care what you like. You know what I'm saying? Not when I'm here. You know why I can say that? Because when I'm here, I'm God's spokesman. You know what I'm saying? So you, you can not like me all you want, but I'm speaking for the Lord. So you don't like what he got to say about it. Get over it. I assure you, he's not going to come down, pat you on the back and be like, oh, baby, you didn't like what I had to say. Well, I'll change it. He's not going to do that. He'll say, you don't like it. You change it. Am I right? 
God, is, is there anywhere in scripture where God says, you know what? I'll just change it since you don't like it. No, but there's a lot of areas where what? People had to change because they didn't like it. Right? Listen to what Paul writes. I'm trying to flip back and forth because I know a lot of you guys are going to be like, oh, that was Old Testament. Da, 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 da. No, this is everywhere, man. This is God's Testament, right? Philippians chapter 3, 17 through 21. Paul writes to Philippians and he tells them, my brothers, this is the people he was proud of now, at one point at least. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping. He's crying about this. He's 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 a guy. Where would guy go? He's gone. He's, he's security checking for you so you can be alive. Right. You hadn't earned any gunshots. So you're safe. Right. But think about this. He is weeping for this moment. Why? That they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who end in destruction. Whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things for our citizenship is in heaven. Kingdom minded. From which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I don't know if you guys catch it in my my reading. Paul is begging them to get an eternal perspective on life. He's begging them to get kingdom minded. He's like, you guys are focusing so much on being happy right now and your success right now. You're so, you're so content to be written like Chronicles writes. But there's a great theological point that Kings is trying to make about your life. And it's not just how successful you are in this world and the great things you accomplish in this world. It's what are you doing for the kingdom? It's what are you doing for God? It's how much closer are you getting to him and what are you doing to make other people closer to him? Not superficial, not emotional. I mean like really close to him in a relationship with him. So close to like you, you randomly start doing things to please him. I'm dead serious. Think about your relationships and how they change by who you're in a relationship with. Somebody at work, you tell them good morning. Why? Because it's the polite thing to do, right? That's like the beginning of, uh, of absorbing maybe some of the, some of the laws and stuff, right? But you get a real deep relationship. Like get one good with your wife, right? And, and when she's got a cold, like you, you go fix her some of that emergency stuff that she hates to drink, but you make her drink it. I made her chug it this morning, guys. Right? But you do that. Why? Not because I enjoyed drinking half of a thing of water and then mixing it and shaking it and, and taking it to her right after I fixed her coffee and all that stuff. Like, like, like that, that was, I did it because I care about her well-being. And if you think that's one level, yeah, I hadn't got to this level now, okay? But any of y'all got kids and had to clean up their throw up? That's disgusting. But when you got a good relationship, you willingly do that. Because just throwing newspaper over the top of it is not kosher, right? Think about this, though. How much of our stuff changes by how deep our relationships are with people? Do we understand the illustration? Should it not be the same with God? Right? Like, yes, I, you know, it's no different than my dog. You know, we get a puppy, we train him to sit, you know, we, we train him to, to get paw and all stuff, and he does it for a treat. Now, God's got lots of treats for us in Scripture, don't get me wrong, right? Lots of treats, full of rewards, great rewards. Even if you don't get them here, the rewards in the, in the kingdom are far great, right? But you know what I really love with my dog? And, and I had one or two in time that would do it. What I love is when they'll sit when I don't have a treat. When I tell them, sit. And sure, they might be sitting because they think a treat may be coming. And maybe it'll come later. I don't know. But but I just love, like, to me, that's the next level. Like, you've got a level of doing stuff just for that, that initial reward. And then you got a level of, like, doing something to please the master. And he'll sit in that little nub because we got wine riders and their tails are only, like, this long. And that thing will, will wiggle 7,000 beats a minute. Like, it's going crazy. And all it is is it's just happy that it pleased me. Right? Could you imagine like if your if your kids had tails so you could see when they were happy or not? And I don't know if your kids out there shaking his tail, but maybe our, maybe that is the problem with us men. Maybe our wives need to have a tail, right, so we know when we've done it right or not. Huh? <laughs> I like mama shaking her tail, but <laughs> that'll get me in trouble. Let's go on. Sorry, sorry, it was right there. I had to had to just take it, right? Let's go. What he said, verse eighteen: enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that mean? Because we all agree, like, I don't want to be an enemy of the cross of Christ, right? Are we on agreement on that? 
Like we may differ on some things, but we agree. Like I want to be an enemy of the cross of Christ. Right? Here's what. Here's four characteristics in those verses that it talks about for enemies of the cross of Christ. It says their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. What's your God? What is it? What are you hungry for? Whose glory is their shame? You know, the men were talking about fasting uh, Wednesday night, and we we reverted back. We were in chapter ten, I think. And we, but we went back to, to chapter six. And we were like, you remember when the Pharisees were, were all fasting and, and they started doing it another time of a week and they started actually making themselves look worse than they actually were. And God looked at them and what did he tell them? He goes, you, you get your glory here. if This is the glory you're wanting. Right. The, the, the shame of, of their glory. And, and then the last thing, who set their mind on earthly things? What is your mind set on? What is your mind set on? Make sure it's not you. Make sure that you're focusing not on not on this life, but the next. Not on all the good you can do here, but the good you can do in the kingdom and for the kingdom. Uzziah accomplished great things politically, but he accomplished nothing spiritually. I almost wanted to title this, the king who accomplished nothing. Because that's what he did, he accomplished nothing. That was his legacy. When we're talking about scripture writing. And then the other thing that was written about him that I, I jumped on and told you guys, I just didn't want to leave out. Verse 5. He's a leper. Yahweh afflicted the king. Oh my gosh, is that not horrible to read? Yahweh afflicted the king and he had a serious skin disease until the day of his death. Who gave him the skin disease? Yahweh! You're like, oh, why? Wait, then you got to go to Chronicles 26. Because remember, Kings is just getting to those, those theological points and that's it, right? Chronicles 26, 16 through 21, it tells us this, that he was so full of pride. Mitch said it right, right after he got strong enough for himself, but pride took over, that he, he started disregarding the commands of God. So much so that, that you read it, he thought he could be a priest in the temple. You, you guys remember Saul? How much trouble he got in for, for offering a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to sacrifice? Right, that he wasn't called to do? He's the same thing right here with this guy. Uzziah defied the commands of God, and God struck him a leper until the day he died, it said. The only other thing recorded about this guy, he didn't remove high places, and he became a leper because God cursed him to become a leper. Six and seven, then it says the rest of his acts is recorded in Chronicles, which means this, like they're not even important enough for me to write about. That's what the author, author of Kings is writing, and that's what he says. He goes, they're not even enough for me to write about. Go read Chronicles if you want to check it out. Then it says he slept with his fathers, and they, they buried him and he died. 52 years, seven verses, and that's it. From a spiritual perspective, he accomplished nothing. World's definition of success and God's definition of success is very different, guys. Whose ruler are you using? Let me, let me ask you this. Are you seeking to make this world something that's pleasing to the one who made it? Like, like how, I often wonder, how much work is he going to have to do when he comes and builds his kingdom? Like, And, and I wonder, like, and here's what I mean by that. Because I wonder, like, when he comes on down and, and he starts rebuilding the kingdom and all, I wonder, like, if he's going to look at us and be like, man, great job, brother. I didn't have to do so much in the areas you lived in because you took care of a lot of it and you trained them up the right way. Or is he going to look at you and be like, man, you did nothing. I had to totally demolish the whole building and start back over because you did nothing for getting the kingdom ready. Am I making sense? You guys understand what I'm trying to say? Like when, when he comes and he says he's going to rebuild his kingdom, right? When, when you guys are looking at me like I'm crazy. Like when, when he comes in and he rebuilds his kingdom and, and he's getting his kingdom straight, you and I should have already started laying the foundation for that kingdom. And if we haven't, guess who's going to be to blame? We are. Do you understand? Like the standard. He, he's not lowering the standard. He's not going to be like, oh, you did all your dad did. That was great. No, his standard's up here. He's going to be like, if you, if you didn't tell him to get ready and clean it up, like, like, like heralds, you know, hark the herald angel sings that we always, you know, you know, sing during certain times of the year. Like we, we should be heralds. We should, we should be those messengers of the king that are going before him and tell him, man, you got to sweep that up. He, he ain't going to like all that dirt on the porch, man. The king is getting ready to walk down this street, right? Same thing in a worldly, in, in, in the new kingdom idea. Like we, we got to get ready. If we're doing things that he's not going to like, we need to tell people, right? So that, so that he doesn't have to. I tell you this, it was better when my friends told me to do something than when my dad told me to. You know what I'm saying? 
Like if my friends told me, hey, man, I don't think you should do that. And I didn't do it. It, it saved me from my dad really telling me later I shouldn't have did something. Right? Am I right? Is it going to be any different with God? Do we not call him Abba for a reason? He's daddy, man. Don't you think? I'll show you. Hold on. Since you don't know, I get you right here. Let, let's skip down. I was going to skip them, but I got I got 10 minutes to do 8 through 31. I can do it. I promise you I can do it because of the way the guy of Kings did it. Right? Right? First, everybody look at your neighbor. Tell him, be the one. Now look at him and say, what one? Be the one what? Be the one who's got the courage, the conviction, and the boldness to confront an area that high places are still raining. You understand me? Be the one who's bold enough to do that. And and then maybe you could even ask, and, and Lord, don't let him answer, right? But maybe you could ask your neighbor, hey, what's your one area? Ask him, what's your one area? If you're sitting by your spouse, please don't answer. Right? But what, what, what's your one area? What is your one area where high places are still raining and you haven't taken care and done the things that God has called you to do? And why aren't you? Why are we not making a spiritual difference and we're content to make worldly differences? Look, look at 8 through 31. I'm really going to finish them, I promise. Right? I'm not going to go into that last king, but I'm going to get 8 through 31. You've got six kings. 8 through 31. Six kings, nation of Israel. So if you had the map back up, I won't make KB do it, but you would be back to the northern kingdom now, okay? Just so you understand the difference. In the northern kingdom, they had six. Oh, she's so good. You had six kings, and the time the southern kingdom had their one king. Is that not a problem? That should have done. Yeah. And he was still considered what, spiritually speaking? A bad king. Right? But he was good enough to be the only king for 52 years while this northern kingdom has six of them. He said, why'd they have six? Well, because they didn't like him, so they killed him. And they didn't like that guy, so they killed him. And they didn't like this, so they got rid of him. Assassination, 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 murder. I mean, so much evilness going on in this. So much so that 8 through 31, six kings takes us all the way to literally the end of the line for Israel. This section ends with, with Hosea, which is the, on the throne. He's the last king to sit on the northern kingdom. And it's during his reign that the nation is completely destroyed. They're carried into exile. And I'm going to do like the writer did it because I feel like he did a lot of rapid fire. So I'm going to do some rapid fire so we finish on time. Right here. Here's how sad it is. We see just how far Israel's really fallen. Now, now think about Israel as a nation, guys. Please be with me on this. Israel as a nation, right? Where did they start? Delivered out of Egypt. Given land. Given an entire world for them, you know, their idea, like this was a whole world that they're blessed with. Yet when you look at the whole story, this, this is now where they're ending up. Now, I know it take, it's taken us a long time to get to this point from their beginning because we only get Sundays together. Right. But when you if you could zoom out on your little drone and, and look at is this not just a sad picture from what an awesome beginning could have. I mean, think about the beginning. Think about how bad even the beginning was, though. They don't get into the kingdom right away because what? Some people saw grapes and some people saw giants. Right? That that, that in itself starts it. If you go back to I'm not going to read it, but if you go back to Deuteronomy 31 and 32 this week, that's chapters 31 and 32, so two two old chapters, right? God tells Moses in 31 what's going to happen before it even happens. He says, man, you, you're not going to get to make it. Joshua's going to lead him in. He's going to take the reins. He's going to take him into the promised land. Here's what he said. He tells him, yeah. But your people, my people, you know, it's one thing when you're talking about somebody else, but it's another thing when you're talking about your own people, isn't it? He says, my, my people are going to get corrupted by the stuff they leave in the land. And I'm going to have to punish them for it. Now, this is, what, 700 years at least, if not more, before this moment? And God is saying, like, I know what they're going to do, but I still give them free reign to do what they want to do. And in chapter 32, you know, we... Anybody learn songs like we learn by music? That's nothing new, by the way, in case you thought like, oh, that's an idea. No. In chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, Moses and God are talking and God says, I'm going to teach you a song to teach them. Right. So he's teaching them this song. Read 32. It's I guess it's kind of a sad song, too, when you really think about it, because he's, it's kind of warning them. Right. And these final six kings, they, they, they didn't learn the song. You ever hung out with somebody 
who likes to sing but doesn't know the song? Right? Crystal will pick on me sometime. We'll take a road trip and she likes this, this road trip rock out stuff and old school and, and I'll know like part of it and then we'll get to like a part that evidently wasn't on any of the movies I watched so I don't know it and I'll be like, and she'll just look over at me in disgust like she hates it. So there's my prideful moment, right? It's no different for God's people. He, he's teaching them a song so they can grow and learn from it. Yet they're choosing not to learn it. They're just mumbling through it. Here, here's the first first lesson we get at, at 8 through 31. Not really a glorifying one, I hate to say, right? God is so faithful to his promises. Amen? Right? Do, do you remember what happened in 8 through 31? Because not just is God faithful in his promises to bless, he's faithful in his promises to punish. We forget that part of it, do we not? When we first thought of God's promises, we were like, yeah, we're getting good stuff. No, God says, I'm going to promise to spank you, and I'm going to spank you. Like that, That's not a good thing, right? We studied these six kings. At the whole time Judah had this one king, by the way. I just, I'm amazed by that. I just think that's so sad, right? Here's some similarities. These kings died by assassination, and none of them turned away from the golden calves. Now, I point out the golden calves because as the writer of kings had tunnel vision, for the one sin of the southern kingdom, which was the high places. He's got, he's got tunnel vision on the one sin of the northern kingdom, which is Jeroboam's calves. Right? Both, both parts of, of pagan worship and idol worship and wickedness. And it's the one sin he can't turn away from. And in verses 8 through 12, we, we get this, this first king that comes in. Zechariah comes in and it says of, of course he was evil because he couldn't turn away from the, the calves. So he only reigns for six months and he's assassinated. And it's horrible what's written. It said after he says it, his killer takes his place. How bad do we have to be? What kind of condition do we have to be in where, where we start letting the killers take the place? What is it? Maybe it's not a person, but what is it that's killed something in your life that you've now allowed to take the throne? Right? Maybe it was a rough moment. Maybe it was an addiction. Maybe it was a problem. Maybe it was a stumble. Maybe it was a fall. Maybe it was just something so painful, but you've now given it reign to be the king over your life when it killed something to get there. Verse 12, this is the word of Yahweh, which is spoken to Jehu. Here, here's how it sums it up. Saying, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And, and, and so it was. My translation says this. God did what he said. That's, that's all that verse is saying. God did what he said. For at least four generations, Israel's punishment has been put on hold. Why? Because God made a promise to Jehu's boys. And he said, you'll get four generations. You know, when we get to this part right here in, in the book of Kings, that time is over, man. That's why it says, and so it was. God did exactly what he said. He completed the promise. Not just a promise of blessing, but a promise of punishment. And when he completed that promise, here's what it leads to for a people who neglect God. A chaotic period. Do you remember 13 through 26 that Ed read? Just, just look down at your Bible and look over them, man. I mean, look at the nastiness, the assassination, the killings, the grief, the pain, the evils and the troubles. Speaking of evil, evils and troubles, do you remember what Moses said? Verse 30, uh, Deuteronomy 31, 17. I know I just told you to look back, but I'm going to read it. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them. So they will say in this day, it is not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us. Wow. God specifically promised many evils and trouble. Is that not exactly what Israel's getting? I, I wonder sometime when we go through some of our evil, evils, evils, evils of evils and our troubles. Like, like if we understand, like some of it we're getting because we're neglecting to do things God's way. Like it shouldn't surprise us sometime. Just like when God does great big old things, it shouldn't surprise us. You know, we shouldn't be blown away by the awesomeness that he does. Verses 13 through 15, we get, we get another king that doesn't last no time. Why? Because he's assassinated. He's assassinated and his person that assassinated him took his place. And he didn't remove the golden calves either. Then we get a third king. Right. And, 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 and unrest breaks out so much with, with uh, Menahem when he is king that the people of Israel don't even want him. 
Like these are evil. These people have, have fallen, right? But this guy is so evil, even the people don't want him. Verse 16. It says that because they did not open up, therefore he struck and ripped out all of his women who were with child. Because they wouldn't accept him as king. This is the way he treats them. This is what he does. You guys ever notice every time God's got something really bad, he's trying to display for the style in the world that's going on, that it goes back to either pregnant women or babies and the destruction of them. I just point that out because I'm like, huh, maybe that should be a sign for us. But that's something God, God considers pretty valuable, right? They're falling apart so much that, that this guy, this guy, this tyrant who's ruling by force, that he could actually, I mean, 17 through 20, you read it, man, he could care less about his own people. Now, it's bad enough when you got bad rulers doing bad stuff to try to benefit people. But this guy's a bad ruler doing bad stuff, and he doesn't even care about the people. So much so, the verses tell us that he hired a local enemy to secure them. What enemy have you let in to hold ransom the people you're supposed to be caring about? And why? He even It says that he even stole from his own people to pay off the enemy territory. This is a horrible time to live in Israel. This is the exact opposite of what was going on in the Soviet. And this is written because it's spiritually sound. 21 through 26, we get another guy who steps in. Yet in that time, a time of chaos, it still says that Israel turned away from God. And that's why they were getting the many evils and the troubles that God had promised. Then the end of our section from the day 27 through 31, we, we got a king who turned away so much that, that God made a promise. He fulfilled it. It led to, to a, a really bad time. And now it leads to, to a captive people. Look at 29. And the days of this, this second to the last king that's mentioned, Pekah, king of Israel, Assyria came and captured. He captured them, all the land. And he carried them captive to Assyria. 700 years after God has taught his people a song to sing to warn them about what would come if they continued to fall into the other nations. That's exactly what happens, and now they're suffering the consequences because they didn't learn the words to the song. God's faithfulness doesn't just concern his blessings. God's faithfulness concerns his promised judgment as well. And you and I, have got to, we got to see both sides of it, man. It's a hope that you and I will not be as ignorant or as arrogant as Israel, however you want to word it. The main point of God's song, that song I've been talking about, Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have, I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God's trying to remind him of, of how awesome and how wonderful he wants to be. Kind of like in, in Revelation 22 where he says what? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. He's saying like I was there when it began and I'll be there when it's done. I will, I will see it to completion. In other words, God started it and God will end it. So, so where do you want your legacy to be? How do you want it written? You want it written like Chronicles? You want it written like, like Kings? You're going to do things for this kingdom? Or are you going to do things for his kingdom? And if you and I can't understand that all the little merit badges we think we're earning while we're here don't always add up to what he wants for there, we're missing it, man. We're missing it. If, you're, if your ruler for success is how much money is in a bank account or how much land you got or, or how big this is or how big that is, we're missing it. Because God says what he cares most about is how much we're advancing the kingdom. How closer in our walk we're getting with him. How closer we're bringing other people into that walk with him as well. How much growth is taking place on a spiritual level rather than a physical level. Worldly success versus kingdom success. What will be written about you? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I know we covered a lot of verses, God, so I pray in, in your infinite wisdom, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will come and fill gaps this week as we think and contemplate the things that were written both in Kings, Chronicles, and Deuteronomy, Lord. 
God, your spirit will right now speak volumes, Lord, for, for areas where I might have missed over. Lord, I pray, God, more than anything else that you accomplish what you want to accomplish within your people, including myself. And Lord, as you do so, God, I pray that we are courageous and bold enough, Lord, to surrender to your will. And sometimes that'll mean getting uncomfortable. First in our walk with you, Lord God, and then in our walk with the world. But Lord, I pray that you will make us bold enough to do so. So that, Lord, when when there's something written about us, it's kingdom-minded, Lord God, and not worldly-minded. Your great and holy name. Amen.